Hello and welcome to another episode of the Codcast, a podcast in partnership with Transit Matters here at Commonwealth Magazine. My name is Josh Fairchild. Uh, I am the president of Transit Matters and uh, often am the host of this podcast. And I'm joined today by... Jared Johnson. I am the COO and development director here at Transit Matters. And Jim Aloisi, a board member of Transit Matters. And we are excited to be joined today by City Council President Andrea Campbell. She is the City Councilor for District 4, representing Dorchester, Mattapan, Rosendale, and Jamaica Plain. Welcome. Thank you, and thank you for having me. So, um, Councilor Campbell, we um, initially had invited you on the prior podcast, and there were some scheduling issues where we were talking a lot about Vision Zero, um, and we had some advocates um, there. So we thought we would start by, um, by discussing Vision Zero a little bit more, and then maybe move into some more general transit topics uh, that involve Boston. Um, and the first question that, that we had um, related to, um, we were wondering what kind of response you had gotten um, from your suggestion to Boston Police Department around enforcement. And I guess to give a little bit of color to this from the Vision Zero, there's, there's a debate about, you know, how are the streets designed? Are they, are they designed to encourage people to slow down and pay attention? Or do we come at it from an enforcement? And it's kind of, I think maybe it has to be both. But enforcement is something that people complain about a lot because right now maybe we don't have the design changes or those are longer-term issues. Um, but you've had some thoughts around that, so we wanted to ask you about it and see what kind of responses you had gotten. Yeah. Um, first of all, I think you you said it um, accurately. It has to be a comprehensive response um, and approach. So I think you know what sometimes frustrates me uh, with the conversation is we are talking about enforcement in one space or lowering the speed limit in another space or um, slow streets or ways to change um, the you know ways to make structural changes structural changes say that quickly um, to the streets in Boston and so I've I've been saying we can't keep doing that we have to have all of these conversations almost running on parallel tracks um, enforcement lower the speed limits, yes, but of course if you lower the speed limits without doing something about increasing the capacity of the police department to do enforcement, then that's useless. Um, at the same time, we want more streets to change, and that might be adding speed humps, whatever it is that we need to do to physically force cars to slow down, we need to do that. And then um, we also need to think about, of course, other modes of transportation, the T, bikes, and, and creating infrastructure for that. So all of this has to be happening at the same time. Um, one piece of the conversation that I have been focusing on of late is the enforcement piece. We had an incredible hearing, actually, with participation by community advocates, um, as well as the police department, on what we could do to improve um, enforcement um, in the city of Boston, across the entire city, and then in certain neighborhoods where they're seeing um, more crashes or more speeding cars. And in a follow-up conversation from the hearing with BPD, I sat down with them to continue the conversation. We agreed on a couple of things. One is that they really need a data traffic data analyst um, position to be filled. Right now, the department does not have one. And so they're saying we have a tango car, um, an enforcement officer that for each district in the city of Boston. But if we had a data analyst that could analyze the traffic reports, the crash reports, we could be more targeted in our for enforcement. It might say, instead of having one for each district, maybe we need to pull one at certain time frames, for example, and put that person in Dorchester in my district or in Mattapan to do greater enforcement between certain hours. Because that position isn't filled, um, they're really uh, you know, using sort of surface level um, information to be able to do their job, and that's making it difficult. I think every counselor in this recent budget hearing with the police department and 
transportation agrees, let's get that funded. The second piece that was really helpful was in addition to needing more officers in our police departments to be able to do enforcement, you know, they need more officers. Until we get there, that's more long-term, how can we pull from existing units to augment or supplement what's happening in the traffic enforcement unit? Um, so there was a lot of talk about the motorcycle unit. Um, and might, there might be more capacity there um, to pull some folks to do enforcement. Um, there was a lot of talk about new recruits or cadets, um, putting those folks in certain departments or pulling them specifically for traffic enforcement. Um, so a lot of creative ideas. I asked the commissioner in the recent BPD hearing um, if we could see a plan to actually um, then be, ab be able to take steps to expand the capacity of the traffic unit to do greater enforcement. Um, and lastly, because I know this came up from residents in my district, um, particularly around some of our incredible cyclists, um, it was brought to my attention that, for example, on the tickets themselves that BPD has to do enforcement, there is nothing that um, uh, where you can check a box and give a ticket for a car blocking a bicycle lane, for example. So that's an easy fix, right, that currently doesn't exist. So literally a resident was riding her bike down a bike, uh, um, uh, cyclist lane and there was a, a couple of cars blocking and she saw a police officer and she's like, hello, do something about this. And the guy was like, there's nothing even on my ticket to be able to enforce this, even though it is currently a legal violation to be blocking a cyclist lane. Um, so small things like that we can also do to um, improve enforcement. And that also came up. And I think um, hopefully the city and the departments will take the right steps. That's really interesting because that's a um, common complaint, um, not only in that situation, but also um, there's, a, there's a bus line that I take you know, quite a bit that make, in Rosendale that takes some tight turns and some small streets. And if there's a car um, double parked going to the convenience store, the bus can't move. Exactly. And, you know, you get that situation where is the bus going to move or the car and you back up and it takes three minutes. And, and it's happening in certain um, places probably a little bit more frequently. So how can we improve enforcement in those areas? And I think we can do that relatively quickly. Um, you know, we're also having some conversations with some of the churches in our community that are parking in some of our uh, bike lanes and saying, OK, how do we get you out of the bike lane but still allow you to be able to park on the street in a safe way um, for services or funerals or something like like that. So our new captain in, in B3, for example, is going to be having some of these conversations with our local churches, which is a good thing. And many of these conversations uh, came about because of our cyclists in the community and in Mattapan um, saying we need to do something. And of course, I have to give a shout out to Vivian Ortiz, who is one of those people um, pushing us to just do better. Well, so I think another, <clears throat> the other side of that question being the design, um, which a lot of the identified changes came out of Go Boston 2030, but there's also grassroots, you know, efforts um, to try to slow the traffic down in Main Street's areas or, you know, places where it doesn't really make sense for traffic to be moving fast. So dealing with that design issue and, and sometimes you have grassroots people trying to make it happen fast. And also BTD has sort of a quick response group that, that identifies places where there have been some injuries or fatalities and tries to get take care of those response, exactly rapid yeah. response as opposed to waiting until the, the number comes up in the normal order um, what are you seeing in in your district and the questions from your constituents about whether that is happening as fast as they want it or whether they feel like they're getting the attention that they need um, do they ha what do you just I guess just what are you hearing about that from the attention they're getting from the city as far as rapid response and where they're placed in the order of things happening mm. um, first of all thank you for that question um, 
so it, I think it's it's I hear a few things. Um, one is the crashes or the accidents, um, frankly, the fatalities that often happen in my district. So whether it's along American Legion Highway, Washington Street in Dorchester, Blue Hill Ave, other Route parts of... Route I think, has a lot. Exactly. Yeah, other parts of District 4, sometimes they're not even reported on. You don't even hear about them. Um, and they're definitely not reported on in the same way as, say, some of the crashes on Commonwealth Ave, the Back Bay. So that is one um, frustration not only do I have, but many constituents with respect to how the media reports on these incidents. Um, I will give credit to a lot of community folks and the activists and advocates who are always um, looking at making sure that they're highlighting uh, particularly every fatality that happens in the city of Boston in an equitable way so that people know that these are happening across the entire city of Boston. But I think we can do a better job just on reporting on these incidents, particularly in certain communities and in communities of color. Um, I think the second piece to your question, um, we're not moving fast enough. I mean, I was in our transportation hearing recently, and this included um, the Slow Streets Division, BTD, Public Works, and I was sort of a little bit... Um, I wasn't shaking, but I told my, I literally said on the record before I started asking my questions, I said, usually when I'm frustrated, take a few deep breaths. So I literally took a few deep breaths because I was like, we're not moving fast enough. And I used a personal example, which is I live in Mattapan, crossing the street. Um, I live on Groveland Street. And residents are always talking about how they can sit on that street and literally just see the cars speeding through because they're cutting through from River Street to get to Morton Street or to get to Gallivan to go to 93, right? They're going around and using, using our neighborhood streets as cut-throughs. I'm walking across the street usually in the morning with my 20-month-old son to bring him to my mom's house. Um, and you can imagine when cars are speeding, you have to sort of say, slow down. And in one particular case, I felt like we almost got hit by a car because someone was speeding up the street. Um, and so this is the city is aware of it. They have all the data um, or they have slow streets applications, for example, that weren't granted where people literally put together these comprehensive um, applications, listed all of the, the data in terms of the fatalities, the near fatalities, and are now saying, well, what are we going to do about it? So in that hearing, I was stressing that frustration. I also said that my husband and I went out and thought, what would it take for us to build our own speed hump on our street, right? That's the level of frustration that we feel. So I can only imagine what other residents feel as well. Um, so my push was that we respond quicker, um, not blaming the folks within the departments. They work really hard. Our city employees work extremely hard. Our engineers work hard. Stephanie um, at Slow Streets and Charlotte um, Fleetwood at Vision Zero and, and the BTD folks, they are on it. They show up. They do the walkthroughs. We have to make sure they have adequate budgets to do the work, to bring on the engineers they need, anything else they need to get these um, these structural changes and these design changes done. Um, sometimes it, it, they said the barrier can be the response from community. Well, then we have to make sure that we are brokering conversations with community, making sure they're part of the design. But I don't like to think that that's the reason why this isn't happening. For me, I, I really do think it's a resource issue. Um, they may not be able to name it in the departments, but I can name it on their behalf. And I'm saying, well, give them the money they need to make this happen. Make it a priority. People are dying. And I'll, 
I'll leave you with one point that I think really got at the sense of urgency that my residents are talking about every day. They feel it, but they want us to align our resources with that sense of urgency. In our traffic um, enforcement hearing that we had, we had a woman who was an ER doctor at BMC, and she actually is a cyclist as well. And so she came in wearing two hats. One was, I'm a cyclist and got hit by a car. And let me tell you what that was like. Um, and I'm also an ER doctor that is responding to some of these fatalities or these crashes. Um, and she says, we don't respond to these crashes or fatalities in the same way in which we sort of pick up our trash, right? Like if someone's calling about trash and recycling in the street, we're on it. We're out there. We're doing it quickly. She says, yeah, when I'm calling um, related to uh, intersection that is creating consistent crashes, um, the response is not the same. This is a public safety emergency. And the way in which she named it and described it was so powerful. Um, and we now have to respond appropriately and adequately to what we hear. And that requires more resources, more human capital than these departments currently have. And they're waiting, waiting on us. And so I am pushing for more and more resources to go to these efforts. I like the way that you, you identified that by, you know, naming it for them, uh, for the people maybe in the departments that can't necessarily speak up and say what they, they need. Um, but it's an interesting problem to have that, you know, um, fatalities are down, which is good. Um, injuries, though, are going up. That's which right. Which tends is a factor of many things, but as more people feel comfortable getting out and walking and biking, there's more injuries. Um, you're saying that many aren't even reported. Um, and... And so maybe you may have increases that are not actual actual changes, but just where we have the, the data is better. Um, so that shows that as as people are becoming more aware, fast isn't fast enough, and we need more money. So I wonder, from your perspective as council president, what are those? Where do those resources come from? Is it the CPA? Is is there the Community Preservation Act? Are there other places or triggers that we can pull to try to to make this happen faster? Well, as an advocate for the CPA, my first term, and it is just bringing about wonders in the city of Boston in terms of housing and historic preservation and parks. Um, you can't use resources for these types of purposes, just the way the legislation was designed. Um, I think you can be creative if we have housing projects and depending on how they're set up to encourage probably or incentivize developers to design in such a way um, that reduces the number of cars, for example, um, and creates more of an appetite for, say, biking, right? Maybe you do a partnership with Blue Bikes or someone else or you have, you know, storage for bikes, like you promote that behavior, um, or you are transit-oriented development, right? So there are, I think, creative ways to support these efforts through that CPA channel. Um, but it really is about pulling resources maybe from other places and saying, this is a priority and we're going to invest this money. Um, I am probably one of the few people, maybe I'm the only one, because I was the only counselor to vote no on the BPS budget last budget cycle. And it's not that I don't think... Well, I voted no because I thought we have a declining school population um, in, in, in some areas. Um, and now the overall number has gone down. Um, but the budget keeps going up, of course, and it's over a billion dollars. A lot of our resources, a lot of them, over a third, go to BPS. Then you're left with almost 40 departments that include public works, BTD, the Transportation Department, our public safety agencies, all of these other agencies that are sort of looking for their piece of the pie. 
So we have to begin to ask where the money is going. And for me, with BPS, which is obviously a separate sort of issue, but it's still connected when you talk about the money, um, a lot of resources are going there. And I'm saying, I think there are plenty of resources already within that system. What are we doing with those resources? How do we shift it so that more of it is going to our schools, our teachers? Um, how do we deal with inefficiencies in the system? Let's hold them accountable for the over you know over one billion dollars that they have before giving them more money. Because right now, for example, we've just given or the proposed budget has us giving them more, almost twenty six million dollars additional. And I'm saying that's twenty six million dollars. You give ten million of that to transportation or these concerns, that makes a real difference. I think right now folks are saying give 12 million. That's like the ideal ask. We could do that in, in different ways, I think. Um, and I, I try to say education, absolutely important. I care deeply about education as a BPS kid that got a good one versus my twin brother who did not, my older brother who did not. I care deeply. But then I'm saying on the same level, it's not less than or, or um, insignificant, Public safety issues are just as important. People are dying from gun violence. People are dying from being hit by a car. People don't feel safe walking down our streets. So there are other um, things, or other issues that are just as significant that we have to be resourcing. And I think it's just some um, values and, and, and who's deciding where the money goes. And I've been pushing to say I think there's some money in our in our budget already, we just have to move some things around because we can't keep waiting in, in this space because people are dying. Um, and, then so, and, and we have work to do. Let me make a pitch and a point, which is um, there is a piece of legislation that's pending in the legislature uh, to enact into law an initiative called Regional Ballot Initiative. And if that becomes law, that will enable cities and towns, either on their own or together with adjacent communities, to raise net new revenue by putting surcharges on existing taxes. So... There's some resistance to this bill, frankly, uh, by the speaker because he sees it as not regionally equitable. And I fully understand that concern that wealthier communities like Boston or communities that have access to more potential revenue like Boston or Cambridge or Quincy versus, you know, pick a community, Lunenburg, there are regional disparities. I think there are ways to improve the bill to correct those regional disparities but I'm hoping that, you know, Boston and other municipalities will find a way to support the RBI bill because it will give you the net new revenue, the potential to raise net new revenue specifically for initiatives like complete streets and like safety. So I just want to make that point. I also, one of the things that I've been advocating since I was secretary, and it's 10 years since, so it hasn't happened yet, but I keep, you know, persistence is my middle name. Um, we have environmental impact reviews for projects. We need to have a safety impact review. Think about baking into every project an SIR, a safety impact review, where we would establish metrics for safety. We would ask the planners, whether it's a road project or a housing project, does the project meet those metrics? And if it doesn't, what do we need to do to correct the situation? So just like we take the environment as a critically important aspect of our quality of life, and we establish environmental metrics that have to be met, safety, and that includes accessibility, but it also includes just regular public safety, should be baked in. And so I recommend 
to the council president and to everyone listening that this concept of a safety impact review be something that, because we can't depend and keep our fingers crossed that just, you know, we elect leaders and then we hope that they'll do the right thing. We didn't do that with the environment. We shouldn't do it with public safety. Well, I hope they do the right thing. Well, I do too, but, <laughs> but you know. And I tell my people, right. you know, you, you, we're here because you put us here and hopefully if you put us here, we made some pledges or promises to do certain things based on um, what you told us was important to you. And now you need to hold us accountable, right? Um, so I hope so. But I, on the um, SIR, which is, is fantastic, I, I think it's almost similar to, um, and maybe not in scale and scope, frankly, um, to sort of traffic studies and reviews that some projects do, not every project. Um, and I will tell you sometimes... And I'll say this for those developers that are really conscious about what community wants and really try to work with community to deliver a really great project. So the biggest frustration we hear is when they go in to meet with community about a housing project that they want to do and say it's with a, a large number of affordable units, is folks are like, this sounds great, but what about the traffic it's going to create? What about mm -hmm. this? What about and parking spaces? Right. And part of that is because we haven't necessarily responded in a consistent manner to the traffic complaints that are coming in from those communities. When a developer goes in to try to do a really good project, they have to deal with all of those concerns that came up before they even got there. And then, of course, what's going to come as a result of their proposed project. So this idea of moving quickly also connects to the housing issues. If we want to see more housing, it helps make it easier for new development projects to come online. But I think that's uh, that's great. Well, I think it also needs to be not just safety, but kind of a holistic. We've gotten good at doing the, the traffic studies. Mm -hmm. um, but as a commonwealth, we, we've identified that we need to be moving people, not vehicles. And so if we can have an analysis that says, yes, we're adding more people, but how are we moving them? Because it doesn't have to be in vehicles. Um, it doesn't have to be about parking spots or curb cuts or, or whatever, um, or, or traffic lights. Um, and, and that's a major piece. <clears throat> that's right. right. And one of the ideas that I've batted around, I know Jim has his hobby horses, but one of the, the things that I've often wondered is we have inclusionary development, um, you know, in when, when a development goes in, a housing development, a certain set of, um, of the units are set aside depending on the size um, for subsidized. And sometimes it goes into, they, they put the money and they, and they build it somewhere else. Sometimes they build right. it right there on site. Um, but we could do the same thing with transportation. And in that way, it could, it could be based on, the, it, could, it could be incremental to the size. So right now, if a big project can afford to pay for a lot of um, transportation mitigation, but a small project obviously can't, mm -hmm. but if they always paid a certain percentage in, and maybe it could be gradated like we do for inclusionary development, then we'd have sort of a piggy bank to go back to and not have to wait till the last developer in the door screws everything. We, we blame him for all the, the past 100 developments on that corridor. Instead, every one of the 100 pays in a little bit, and now we've got the money, and we could even bond against that if we wanted to. Specifically for transportation exactly, purposes. Exactly. So we could say these are the planned we have we're zoned for this or this part of our plan is to develop this. We know we're gonna have this revenue coming as those developments, you know, uh, break ground. So we can begin now bonding off of that and making the improvements now so that we don't deal with the headache of the transportation uh, challenges when those projects, you know, are built. Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting idea. I mean, because when you think about it, some of that happens sporadically with some projects that are larger in scope and scale, where you have a developer recognizing the traffic concerns being raised, and frankly, folks being responsive to the project, but their only hiccup is, what are we going to do? Um, and them setting aside dollars 
to deal with that. And frankly, giving it to the city as community benefits or in some other form or to the transportation department to help mitigate some of those concerns. But what would it mean to formalize such a program? It's tough to think about because yeah. because the state deals with transit and the city doesn't as much. But we could, you know, it's like a BTD has to work with BPDA. You know, there's all these things to oh, think about. Oh, working together. <laughs> right. <laughs> Such, what, a, what a novel concept. Well, I will tell you, that's another piece of this that's really important has been coming up in many of the conversations, including in my district, is communicating across different departments. You know, public works, talking to BTD, and in the budget hearings, I brought this up, and they said, you know, we can do better. Um, and we had one example where uh, public works went out, paved the road, and then... Um, transportation had to go out and do something and so I had to pull the road back up. They hadn't communicated with one another. Um, so I think they've recognized that they can do a lot better with communicating across different departments to be even more impactful in this area. Well, speaking of um, collaboration across uh, agencies, how do we solve a problem like Fairmount? Which part? <laughs> I'm so, right, exactly. You know, yeah. which part? I mean, I think one of the things, I mean, one, it exists. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, when you think about where I live in Mattapan or certain pockets of southern part of Dorchester or Mattapan, there are transportation deserts, right? Um, but you can walk now to the Fairmount line and get downtown really quickly. Wonderful new station Ex that just came online. Exactly. Um, and I have to give um, Rep. Holmes credit here, too, because he obviously has been in, in, in leadership, uh, political office longer than me. And one of the things when I was a candidate was, you know, conversations around the Fairmount line. Some of these stations that are now open weren't open then. Um, and everywhere I went, he was, you know, telling folks, this is your train use it, increase that ridership, um, got the rates to be the same, right? They weren't before. He advocated for that. Um, and then now we're really talking about how do we increase frequency along that line. That came up in a few emails that uh, recently that we received and in some meetings. Um, being able to use your Charlie card, you know, they're trying to figure that out on the Fairmont line. There's some folks that are like, you can't even use your Charlie card. So um, I've been in conversations with the MBTA, including um, Steve Poftak, who I know through different spaces, including Latin School, and, and Danny Levy and some of his team members about, well, what's the time frame with responding to some of these concerns? Um, you know, people can't wait forever. So we've We've been pushing the conversation a little bit, um, but also looking at how do we mobilize some more folks within my district um, to come together around some of these issues, too, to apply the pressure that is necessary, uh, which is similar to the CIP. If people don't know about it, they don't show up. Um, but more and more people are paying attention to transit and transportation. Why? Because they need to get to their jobs, mainly, right? Or they need to get their kid to school. Um, or they need to get to some place for recreational purpose. Um, and they don't want to be on the bus for an hour or two hours long. Um, they want to get there quicker. They want to, um, you know, they care about their time. And so more and more people are talking about this, especially when connected to their economic mobility, their wealth, um, and their jobs and what they're, what they're leaving on the table if they can't get to certain areas outside of their neighborhood for some of these economic opportunities. Absolutely. Well, and, and I think that the, the hopefully the coming investments on the, the Fairmount line um, and talk about um, better bus service along Blue Hill Lamb bring up a um, you know, a, a topic that is inextricably linked to, to transit, and that is housing. And so, you know, how do we, how do we talk about better service, um, you know, in, in our community? Um, you know, how do we talk about that while still being sensitive to people's concerns about gentrification? Because, you know, we, we, we can't accept, 
you know, that bus riders in, in Mattapan and Dorchester have some of the longest commutes mm -hmm. in the city. But then we also don't want to, to displace people, and we still want those communities to still feel welcoming for, for immigrants, for people of color. So how, how do we balance those two things? Right. So, I mean, it, it's such an important conversation, um, and I'm, I'm telling the folks all the time. In my district in particular, I start at Blue Hill Ave down in Square Jubilee Church, and I go all the way up through Grove Hall past the Mecca Mall. So that whole strip is largely D4 um, and part of D5. And I, so I have that strip. I then have Washington Street, Lower Mills, going all the way to Washington hits Blue Hill Ave. So Codman Square. I mean, these are the corridors where people need the buses to work. I then have Mattapan over by River Street, where you take the trolley or the 24-27 bus and to the red line, right? So it's an important conversation. And I have been telling folks, folks outside of, yes, lower speed limits and um, enforcement, the importance of enforcement and the structural changes to the street. Um, we had five of the recent slow streets, for example, that were approved by the city, all in my district. We advocated. We need more um, across the entire city of Boston. But of course, residents were happy to be awarded those. But I always add, I'm like, people, the end of the day, this enforcement, traffic, congestion, it won't go away if we're not talking about using less cars, um, looking at other modes of transportation, and frankly, people who don't have um, cars to begin with and only rely on the T. That also has to be a part of this. It's all connected. And that means we need to have a conversation again. And so if you look at Blue Halav in particular, and all of the activity that goes up and down Blue Hill Ave, um, the number of folks that are on buses getting to work at the hospitals. Uh, Masco did some work where they specifically looked at District 4 and Blue Hill Ave, looked at all the employees that are going to the Longwood area. Um, others are doing the same. If you think about the new jobs and opportunities coming online in the seaport, my people in, in Mattapan and Dorchester, in order to be connected to that economic prosperity, they're, they're going to be getting on buses to get there. Um, or they're going to be going outside of the city of Boston towards Randolph and Milton, the opposite direction. So if we want them to connect to these opportunities, we have to have a really thorough and thoughtful conversation about Blue Hill Ave, dedicated bus lane, rapid transit. Everything needs to be on the table. Um, and not just looking at T solutions, right, how we improve transit and transportation in the bus, but even non-T solutions, right? There are a lot of employers now who are thinking about how do we go deeper in your district to connect some of your folks to us in the seaport because there are jobs here. Um, how do we talk about these non-T solutions? So I'm in the process of all these folks I've been having conversations with almost in silos saying we're coming together to have a deep and thoughtful process that does in fact engage community. And that means door knocking, right? It can't be engaged community. They're not probably all listening to this, right? Um, they're like, you know, hi, my name is, I'm Andrea Campbell, I'm your counselor. We need you to come to this meeting, Ms. Johnson. We have to go back to the streets and livable streets and others are doing that. They're hiring like street captains. Everyone can play a role in this to really transform our vision for Blue Hill Ave, but to ensure it's informed by community. And so I'm looking forward to taking that tough conversation on, understanding the historical context. Um, one thing about having Rep Holmes, he also brings it up. Um, I used to work with Governor Patrick. It comes up. Um, but then I'm saying, okay, that cannot stop us from having the deep, 
thoughtful conversation because we'll continue to get the same thing, which is not adequate to increasing the economic mobility and prosperity for the residents that live along that corridor. And back to your question about dis displacement or gentrification, depending on how it shows up, right? The terminology differs. We have to think about that with respect to everything we do, whether it's housing projects, you name it. So it's, 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 that's true for every, everything. But there's always a way to be balanced and thoughtful if we know that's something we have to be mindful of. Um, but it shouldn't deter us from having the conversation to improve access for those folks who live there. We could you know, make sure that we're running a parallel conversation about those who are renters but who want to stay. How do we get you into homes? CPA does that, right? How do we get you into home ownership opportunities? Some of that is happening and bridging some of these conversations to combat some of that. But it's unacceptable, frankly, not to be having the deep, hard, and yes, they are hard conversations, because otherwise folks will not realize their economic potential if we don't do something. No, so I appreciate your leadership on that. And, you know, as you know, um, yeah. I've tried <laughs> in the past to do something uh, transformative. I just would caution everyone to, and this is true no matter what neighborhood you're in, there's a, there is a difference in terms of the public engagement between, often, between the bus rider and the resident. And the resident is not always or often the same thing. And so you've got, you've got people who are at Mattapan Station Still, probably, I haven't been there in a, in a while, but uh, it always vexed me that you were waiting for the 28 bucks and there wasn't even a, a shelter above you if it was raining. And I would do this a lot to experience what people were going through. And the, the, getting on the 28, which is basically a, 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 the equivalent of a sardine can by the time it gets to Grove Hall, um, that, those people on the bus need to also be heard. And we need to figure out how to hear them and also respect and respond to the concerns of residents who may not always or often use the bus, but who are nevertheless impacted by the existence of that bus route and its impacts on their quality of life, their concerns about gentrification, their concerns about change, because people don't like change, and we, and we understand it. I think if we could unlock Blue Hill Avenue we can, it's a master class in figuring out how to bring transit and social equity to a broad spectrum of people. And it does involve the variety of issues that you've raised. I'll just say one last thing. The people using the Fairmont line have a, their destination is somewhere associated with South Station and Seaport. Mm -hmm. People using the 28 bus have different destinations. They're going downtown or they're going to Cambridge. And so again, I ask people to always be mindful at, figure out where the rider needs to go, wants to go, and then think about how we're responding to those needs because those are not parallel needs. The That's right. Um, and I appreciate that distinction between bus rider, resident, um, in terms of engagement and the importance of engaging all of those parties. And I think when you have it, uh, you know, why I'm excited to lead this conversation and this robust conversation and not... Um, alone, you know, Rep. Holmes, Rep. Dan Cullinane, Senator Collins, um, and of course, all of these livable streets, Vivian Ortiz's, the cyclists, like the list is long of folks who want to be at the table um, and not just to bring their historical context because of the, you know, maybe they work in transportation um, or because they just care because they live in the area. Um, people also have resources and the T wants to be a part of this conversation. This came up in a hearing that we had um, talking about the better bus routes and 
you know, the 28 wasn't on that list. And I said, excuse me, well, who did engagement in Mattapan? Well, we were in Roxbury. I said, well, and I was sitting next to Councillor Janie at the time. And I said, and I'm sure Councillor Janie will get to that in a moment. I know she loves representing D7 Roxbury. Uh, I'm talking about Mattapan. They hadn't even done any community outreach in anywhere in Mattapan. And the issues there show up differently than Dudley Square, obviously. Um, but they, too, were excited about joining a conversation around Blue Hill Ave. And I think um, folks want to bring their expertise, all of the data and information that we don't have, other people have. And they also want to bring resources to bear. And that's exciting. Um, I think it's it, and so it's timely. And I'm looking forward um, to, to starting that soon. And I, I was going to say, I certainly hope that um, we are engaging the community well, um, that the community is... Um, excited about engaging with um, the, the organizations and entities and government. But one of the issues we have is there's just so many, you know, MBTA has their outreach and BTD has their outreach and MassDOT has their outreach. We've, we've talked about several different and then each program within those entities. There's just too many meetings, you know, for the people who are affected to attend to them all or to decide which one should I go to and not the others? Or, or to understand that I went to that meeting. That's not the same meeting. Mm -hmm. That's not the same people. Um, and so how can we have these meetings that can maybe deal with the issues of Mattapan um, without having four meetings from four different you know, government agencies? Um, yeah. can, can we share some of that information on the outreach? Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that people often talk about with respect to the city council is that it's, it's limited in its power and... Some people don't take us serious, and I'm like, take us serious. We do get things done. But we have the tremendous power to convene, and we've done that in my district around many issues. Um, and in this case, it would be convening all of these stakeholders and saying we can't keep working in silos. And that came up in that tea conversation. BTD was also there. Um, and I said to BTD, you know, we're talking about possibly rapid transit. There's some money in the budget, the city of Boston's budget, to hire someone to just be focused on Blue Hill Ave. Well, that's great, but the T has more resources and can do outreach. You know, Livable Streets, Masco, all these organizations have people that are willing to do this. How do we come together, all be sitting around the same table, um, not just with electeds in the room, all of us. Um, and so people are waiting. They're like, sign me up. And so that's what I'm looking to do. Um, also bring in residents, but then at the same time, go out to, it's, it's old fashioned door knocking. It's like a political campaign. You get to know folks by door knocking and, and inviting them into the conversation. Um, I think that distinction though about a bus rider isn't always the resident is important too. Um, and then it's also about that trust, right? So already we're already looking at what are some of the short-term fixes that we could be doing along Blue Hill Ave and some of these residents that live on Blue Hill Ave that have been complaining about speeding cars. We could go out door knock, address some of those concerns, build that trust, and then invite them to a more comprehensive conversation about their neighborhood and how it connects to the Blue Hill Ave corridor. Um, but no one person can do it alone, but we do have the power, at least where we sit on the council, to convene um, because we're closest to the residents in, in many respects. Awesome. So I've got an, another, I've got one more kind of quick question. Well, hopefully it's quick. Um, 
about uh, about some new, you know new technology that that's emerging in the in the transportation sector, and that's e-mobility, and it's it's you know got the potential to to help bridge first and last mile connections um, in some communities. They found that the ridership on some of these e-scooters and e-bikes is actually more diverse than some of the bike share things because of the ability to use your cell phone to because of the ability to use your cell phone to you know to 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 log in and to unlock the bikes. But you know there's obviously a lot of concerns about you know riding on the sidewalk and all those sort of things. So how do you you know, how, how, how do you balance or how do you think about, particularly in, in Dorchester, Mattapan, in, in your district, um, you know, the, this, this new technology? So it's so funny. I was just at a conversation, I think yesterday, maybe it was the day before, at MIT with these executives who are doing impact work in the district. And someone brought up technology. I think, one, we can't be afraid of it. Um, and we have to make sure, I think, as we're rolling out any new thing, that we have folks at the table that probably I definitely have more greater expertise than me, for example, at the table talking about the various forms of technology that are out there. If you think about blue bikes, for example, and the docking stations, that's great. We signed a five-year exclusive contract for that. There are a lot of folks in the community that were like, I was just in this neighboring municipality and there's no docking stations. Why do we have these docking stations? Why can't I just leave the bike near wherever? Um, so it's a matter of a conversation, and I think some communities will respond differently. Um, some may say, let's have a designated area to put these scooters. If you live in a certain area where you're trying to get to, say, Ashmont T Station or some of this, um, to avoid maybe the bus because it's not coming or the trolley because it's not coming, um, you may look at this and say, this is great. But I think it's just making sure that we pull in all communities. I will tell you, I think, with the scooter conversation in particular, I think it's been going a lot. I think it's been going well. There's a committee that's been formed. Um, I actually got the authority to appoint someone from the council, and it will be Council Matt O'Malley, who spearheaded that conversation around the scooters, to that committee. With uh, will include some folks in the mayor's office, transportation, to have I think a more robust conversation about all these concerns at the same time. Whereas with the bikes and blue bikes in particular, some of those conversations I think happened with MAPC, where I used to work, which is great. But I wasn't privy to any of those. So I couldn't bring necessarily the lens of my district um, or the council and the other districts. So I think everyone's at the table. Technology is coming in various forms. Or it already exists in other countries. It just isn't here yet. We just need to be as open-minded um, and to bring our residents into these conversations sooner than later. I think where they really get frustrated is when they feel like they're at the back end and not at the forefront. Um, of the conversation, informing how you roll this out. So it's good to know in certain neighborhoods, they're like, we don't want all these scooters all over my sidewalk. We don't have enough room. And others, it may be a different concern, um, depending on where it is in the city of Boston. So um, I think we have robust conversations and respond appropriately. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you. We, we really appreciate having you on here and, and really appreciate this your leadership. Uh, yeah, really appreciate your leadership on the council and and um, and bringing bringing uh, Vision Zero and 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 really um, thinking about how we balance all modes and and you know really appreciate that. No, thank you guys and thank you for having me. Um, I learned a great deal too, and looking forward to working in partnership with you guys um, as well as uh, the folks who listen and who participate and advocate alongside you. So thank you. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you again on the next Transit Matters podcast.